Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for another opportunity to gather together as your children and to learn your word. Father, we thank you for the gift of salvation through your Son. Help us never take this for granted and help us realize this is the reason that we live and breathe and we're saved by your grace and we walk by your grace. We just thank you for everything, Father, that you've provided for us. And help us tonight listen to what the Spirit has to say to us. Help us forget about our problems, hand those over to you as you promised to take care of them, and help us concentrate on your personal message for us tonight, which you had planned from eternity past. Most of all, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who once and all paid our debt and canceled it out for whoever would turn to him with their heart. Please bless this message. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part two. We're going to start off this way, uh, which this point's come up a couple times now, but regarding unbelievers. Um, this is something that uh, has come to my realization at a, at a much newer level, even though I quote-unquote knew what's on the board here. Uh, it's much more of a reality and important um, thing that needs to be uh, like reconciled in each man's heart. All right? It's not something that can really be skipped over and lightly taken because then there's no real saving faith. So on the board regarding unbelievers, the basic reason why someone rejects the gospel is because its foundational premise is that they realize that a person needs a Savior. Again, the basic reason why someone rejects the gospel is because its foundational premise is that they realize that a person needs a Savior. If a person never rightly reconciles the chasm between themselves and the sovereign God of the universe, they will miss this point altogether. There's a very real impetus for salvation. And that's what I know I've missed out on in the past with the watered-down version of the gospel. Almost skipping over, you know, breezing over the real impetus for salvation. This is a real issue. There's a real problem. There's a real wall between man and God. And a lot of people out there don't think that's the case. As the Spirit brought up, people think they're close to God if they haven't committed murder or adultery especially in this area that we live. How many people say, uh, when you bring God up, well, I'm a good person, I haven't murdered anybody, right? That's the go-to. And the problem is, the Lord Jesus said, if a person hates another person, they're guilty of murder in their heart. And Jesus said, if a person looks at a woman lustfully, they've committed adultery in their heart. So maybe those are a couple of examples we need to share with those who think they're good enough, who think the gap isn't that wide for them to cross. On the board, people need to realize it's an impossible chasm to cross. Some people think the chasm between them and God is like jumping over a puddle 
But instead, it's like jumping over the entire Grand Canyon. I mean, maybe that visual will help someone realize how hopeless this situation is without Christ. I mean, what are you going to do? Take a running start when you try to jump over the Grand Canyon? It's not going to help. And people will, in their mind, think this way. Maybe I can work harder, do better. Uh, you know, I <laughs> that whole striving thing in the flesh. I can be better than others or most. And, you know, so the chasm is just so impossible that this example on the board is a good example from a human perspective. Would you even think you have a possibility of jumping over the Grand Canyon? That's how hopeless and dire our situation is. That's how vast the gap is between our sinfulness and perfect God. It's unapproachable. So think about this. Why did God's plan include John the Baptist coming before the Lord Jesus to make a way for him? Couldn't Jesus just have showed up and done the job himself? Why John the Baptist? Why did John the Baptist come with a whole ministry about repentance alone? What a visual about how repentance comes before saving faith, or must come before saving faith. If someone doesn't realize they have a problem, if someone doesn't realize they need a Savior, they're not going to be ready for the Lord. They're not going to be ready to accept the Lord in their heart. So John the Baptist got him ready. He's like, you don't realize how big the gap is. You don't realize you can't jump over the Grand Canyon or that's how big the gap is. And I think now after all of our lessons, most of you can see why John the Baptist's ministry of repentance came first. Think about how important repentance is then if someone is going to believe in Christ for salvation. Think about how important repentance is if they're going to believe in Christ and become born again, have a change of heart, turn from self and turn to Christ, admit self is unworthy and unable, and turn to Christ in their heart, like wholeheartedly. Someone's not going to do that unless they see a need to repent, unless they see they need a Savior. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 3, verse 1. So think about how important repentance is if someone's going to truly believe in Christ and become born again. I'm not talking about accepting Jesus on the side, like just in case. That's not a heart decision. That's a um, cover-your-butt decision. That's not a change of heart. That's not a repentance. That's not uh, humility and realizing your unworthiness. None of that. Matthew 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. 
make his paths straight. So John the Baptist had a special ministry on the board. John the Baptist's ministry of repentance. The arrogant hearts of men needed to be readied before they will turn to the Lord. Still holds true today. The arrogant hearts of men need to be readied before they will turn to the Lord. If one doesn't admit their sinfulness and repent and turn from it, they will reject Him. They will reject Him, thinking they have no real need. They might say He's a nice guy. They might even say He's a prophet. But they won't cling to Him for salvation. They won't turn away from self because they think self is, quote-unquote, okay or good enough. So again, the arrogant hearts of men need to be readied before they will turn to the Lord. If one doesn't admit their sinfulness and repent, they will reject the Lord, thinking they have no real need. This was John the Baptist's special calling in Matthew 3, 1 through 12. Look at verse 4. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins, his repentance. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, he knew them so well. He said, you're going to pretend to repent right now, but you can't fool God. So you better bear fruit with keeping with repentance. In other words, if you have no fruit, you didn't really repent. And that's the consistent message we see throughout the scriptures. He says, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You can't fool God, in other words. If you really believed God, you would do His deeds. Jesus would even say that type of thing. If you really believed, you would do my deeds. You would follow me. So, in other words, you say you repent, and you're going to act the part, Pharisees, but bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That'll show you if it's real or not. And verse 9, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Does that sound familiar to anybody in this day and age with what we've been talking about? You say you believe in Jesus, in other words, some people. You say you believe in Jesus, but you don't follow him in any way. Don't think your religion or your heritage is going to save you. Pharisees, don't think because you say you're a son of Abraham, you're all set. Your hearts are not repentant. You don't admit you need a Savior. And then look at verse 10. Boy, John the Baptist, man. Talk about pulling no punches. And, and love tells the truth. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Picture that. The axe, the sharp, wonderful, powerful axe, it's ready to go. It's sharpened. 
It's laying at the root of the trees. All someone's going to do is pick it up. Be ready, in other words. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Once again, if they don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance, something's wrong with their heart. They did not truly repent and realize their need for God to save them. And in verse 11, he goes on and says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's like arrogant man needs this type of stark warning to wake himself up to the fact that he's not good enough on his own. Especially religious folks like the Pharisees. The Lord is coming, in other words, and one needs to turn to him in their heart to be saved from his wrath. And if you don't think you need to repent, you're not going to turn to him in your heart to save you. So an entirely separate ministry came to the people before the Lord himself came on the scene. And its entire purpose from God was to preach to men of their need to repent. So how important is repentance in the big picture of salvation? If the Lord decided to have this ministry come first to prepare the hearts of men before the Lord's ministry came on the scene. I mean, the Lord needs nothing, right? There's no perfect ministry other than the Lord's ministry. And yet God saw fit again and provided John the Baptist because men's hearts are arrogant. And they need to be prepared. So I think it's a good visual that we, sh we can adapt into our own ministries. Into our own walk. And Satan and the kingdom of darkness are doing their best to hide this need from people. Especially in this geographical location we're in. He's, he's doing his best to hide this need from people. That there is a need to repent. There is a a sinfulness in you that you can't pay for, that is beyond reach, that can't be bridged, that gap cannot be bridged. You can't build a bridge over the Grand Canyon. It's that hopeless and helpless. And that's what the kingdom of darkness is hiding from people. So many people in our area think they're a good person and they're all set, they're okay, because they haven't, quote-unquote, murdered anybody. And Satan's got them wrapped. He's got them totally deceived. And they don't know it. So we've seen that evil has a champion. Satan's ploy is to get people believing they're righteous without God's help. Or at least they're righteous enough to gain entrance into heaven. And even then the end goal is perverted. He propagates lies stating that if you're self-righteous enough, you certainly don't need Christ's righteousness. And he may not even put it in those terms, but 
That's the lie he's planting in people's souls. Oh, you're good enough. You're self-righteous enough. You do good for people once in a while when it's convenient for you. So this, this lie has been sown into the hearts of men. If someone believes they're good enough on their own, there's no need to repent. And without a repentant heart, one will not turn to Christ wholeheartedly. And this is why the gospel is the center of all scripture and all of the Apostle Paul's letters too. Because there's zero hope of salvation without receiving Christ's righteousness. The power to save is in the gospel. And it's not only for you and I listening right now, but it's for all men. Romans 1.16, the power is in the gospel. It's the hope of mankind. And that's why our entire focus in our lives and our ministries should be the gospel. The center should always be the gospel. The gospel hope. The gospel is everything to a believer. Any hope of deliverance at or after being saved is a function of this one reality, that the gospel is our hope. We saw a passage on Sunday revealing Paul's love for the gospel and his focus on the gospel itself. So let's review some key points from Sunday. Go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. There were some key points the Spirit brought out to us on Sunday. And I hope you look at this as a valuable review. 1 Corinthians 15.1 Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So on the board, we saw this on Sunday, if you hold fast the word. Paul was concerned about the quality of what people believed in and whether or not said belief resulted in true faith. 2 Corinthians 13.5, 1 John 2.19, for example. And by grace you have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2.8, that's what he was concerned with, that they had an authentic faith. The gospel of salvation was the centerpiece of his ministry at all times. If you read all of his letters, people like to get focused on the maturity, quote-unquote, maturity passages. He's always going back to the gospel. He's always going back to salvation. Paul was clearly saying that if someone doesn't hold fast the word of truth, they may have believed in vain. Look at it again in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. If the word of truth is important to you in your heart, that's a good sign that your heart's been changed. If the word of truth isn't important, honestly, to you in your heart, you may have believed in vain. That's what he's saying. 
So here's a point that came out on Sunday as well on the board. Paul's calls to examine. Paul was never timid about having individuals examine their own faith to see if they were truly disciples. And throughout Scripture, you see him inserting this kind of testing into the hearts of those he was writing to. How many times have we seen in Scripture that we should test our hearts and examine our motives? And even God tests the hearts and emotions of man, for example, in in the book of Psalms. How much more important is it regarding salvation? Again, on the board, Paul's calls to examine. Paul was never timid about having individuals examine their own faith to see if they were truly disciples. You know, some people, people would say, you know, why, why make people question their faith, right? Why make people question their salvation? Well, apparently, it was the right thing to do from Paul's perspective. And from the Spirit's perspective, it's in the Word of God. And you, and you might say in every church, there's people that either aren't saved or there's new people that come in the church that act like believers, but they're still questioning in their heart. Who knows? People, if there's anything you want to examine, it's this. What's more important? So in other words, has it become a heart issue for you? And I'm not talking to each of you necessarily, okay? But whoever's listening, has salvation become a heart issue for you that you really realize your unworthiness and you turn to Christ wholeheartedly? Or is it simply an acknowledgement of facts about Jesus? Is it a religious thing? Is it just something you have always known and you've never really counted the cost? As came up on Sunday during closing prayer, believing in Christ to be saved is a lot less about believing the facts about Him and it's a lot more about trusting in His person to save your life. It's one thing to believe facts about somebody. It's another thing to trust somebody with your life, right? Two totally different things. And that's really what saving faith is. So it's a heart issue and a surrender of the will. But to many people today, it's just a religious checkbox. And that's what's sad. That's why in a lot of churches even today, there are unbelievers that are there for the wrong reasons, that are there to cover their butts, Um, or to please the family, or we could go on and on with all the reasons. But they have not had a come-to-Jesus moment. They haven't had a heart issue, uh, faced their need for repentance. On the board, we saw 2 Corinthians 13.5 in the Amplified. Test and evaluate yourselves to see whether you are in the faith and living your lives as committed believers. Examine yourselves, not me. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, by an ongoing experience, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test and are rejected as a counterfeit? So if you're living your life as committed believers, as Paul says here in the first half of the verse, you can rest in his salvation and in eternal security. See, that's a sign, that's a fruit, that, you know what, you really do believe. 
I'm following him. I'm not perfect, but I'm following him. I'm living the life of a committed believer, for example. So that fruit is, is, uh, is solid. It's, it's um, what's the word? It's real, you know? And then if somebody could care less about the word and totally lives their lives for themselves, but they say they're a believer, they may have a big problem because their heart maybe never changed. They never repented. They never turned to Christ, trusting Him to save their life. So again, we'll read it one more time on the board. Test and evaluate yourselves to see whether you are in the faith and living your lives as, com as committed believers. Examine yourselves, not me. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves by an ongoing experience, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail a test and are rejected as a counterfeit. One of the key lessons we've learned over the last year and a half was that a true disciple of Jesus Christ perseveres. As you just read through the scriptures in context, we see it. It's plain. Plain as day, really. The Spirit, Spirit brought this out to us as well on Sunday on the board. Why does the true believer persevere? Why? Why does the true believer persevere? Only one reason, really. Because God has literally changed them, made them new creatures in Christ, and He gave them His own Holy Spirit to empower them. That's why a true believer perseveres. It's not because man thinks he has to work for salvation or has to work to keep his salvation. Perseverance is a result of salvation. It's part of the power given to, to the believer. It's not something he even has to work for, actually. It comes naturally, spiritually speaking, because he's been changed. So that he perseveres. Why? His heart's changed. He can't go throughout life ignoring Jesus Christ. He, he just like can't anymore. So again, it's not because man has to work for salvation or to keep his salvation. Why does a true believer persevere? One reason only. Because God has literally changed them, made them new creatures in Christ, and then gave them his own Holy Spirit to empower them. So it's the opposite of human thinking, really. If God has changed a man at salvation, then he's changed him. He now has a new heart, and God himself is living inside of him. And God never fails. God can't fail. Many so-called Christians are living insecure lives because they've never actually counted the cost. They've never even examined their own sinfulness and think they need to repent. They've never actually surrendered to Christ in their heart and trusted Him to save their lives. So they're insecure. They're wondering about heaven. They're hoping to go to heaven. And in their mind, it's based on if they're good enough or not. But if you've surrendered to Christ and you follow Him, that's a sign that you are secure in His hands. That's a sign that you're a true believer. And Jesus says, no one can pluck you out of my hands. 
So once again, the simple, plain fruit should give you great confidence. And if you have zero fruit at all, you really should bow your head and go to God. For real. People need to ask themselves, are they playing a game? Like Paul said, examine yourselves. Are you just going along for the ride? Have you denied self and turned to Christ to save your life? Are you holding on to self? And in your soul, you got Jesus on the side just in case. Again, God can't be fooled. We were also reminded of more evidence of those with spurious faith in 1 John on the board. 1 John 2.19, here's a sign, here's a fruit of an unbeliever. They went out from us. The church, the body of believers, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not all of us. Even all in the churches are not believers because they leave Christ behind and never look back, some of them. I'm not talking about if someone leaves this church and goes to another church, right? Of course not. They're still, if they're following Jesus, God bless them, wonderful. I'm talking about people that leave the church and don't look back. Was their heart ever changed? Do they really realize what Jesus did for them? So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and this phrase, holding fast the word as evidence of true faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So on Sunday morning, we saw this phrase on the board, this first importance phrase from protos in the Greek. It implies a superlative. Uh, it means foremost in time, place, or order of importance. In context, it places the gospel as the centerpiece of Paul's ministry. Again, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What did he also receive? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And then we saw on Sunday the ultimate purpose in all of this. What was really important to Paul's heart, which should be important to our heart as the top priority, protos, 
as of first importance. Verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. There's the victory. There's the purpose. The Christian life is all about the gospel. It's why we're saved, and it's why we're still alive, even after salvation. It's the purpose for our lives on earth. What else is there besides seeking and saving the lost? What, what other big picture purpose could you possibly think of besides the gospel, which Paul writes about in his letters over and over and over? I hope some will be saved, right? I'll do whatever it takes. The heck with me and my past and my accomplishments means nothing. I want others to come to Christ. I would give up my own salvation, Paul said in so many words. I'd give up my own salvation if my brethren could be saved. My Jewish brethren could open their eyes and see. It's all about the gospel. Why do we do all of this at the church? Why do we do all that we do? It's ultimately so that more people will believe. And on the board, that phrase, and so you believed. This is the very reason, the intended result of Paul's preaching. This wasn't some diatribe against Christian immaturity. It was a clear indication of the goal of Paul's ministry, which was like Jesus's, to seek and to save the lost, like Luke 19.10. This was the reason. This was the reason Paul lived. This was the reason Paul gave up his body at times, allowed himself to be beaten and persecuted, willingly went into Jerusalem, for example, even though the Spirit warned him not to go. He willingly went because he wanted to save some. That was the intended result of his ministry. The Apostle Paul was right in sync with the Lord's mission and heart to seek and to save. So in so many words, Paul says something like this. This is why I do everything I do. Everything is with salvation in mind for more and more people, that more of the lost would be found, just like the Lord Jesus came for. So this is our very purpose, all believers. It's revealed in the Great Commission passed on to us by the Lord, and it's the very heart of God. So again, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now back to Paul's concern in the beginning of our message, that some people in the churches were not actually saved. Again, Paul had no problem, quote-unquote, checking people with his messages. He had no problem. And it's not that we can say if a particular person is saved or not. That's not really the point. It's the idea that we don't assume either way. And we encourage men to check their own hearts, especially if they don't hold fast the word. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 2. So our Lord Jesus himself, too, pulled no punches regarding salvation. He was direct and honest about being a true disciple. 
or not. Just like we saw John the Baptist was with the Pharisees. He's like, you brood of vipers. You really repent? We'll bear fruit with repentance. Otherwise, you're just a liar. That was John the Baptist. That was Jesus' attitude. Matthew 16, 24. Go there again. Matthew 16, 24. I once knew a guy years ago when we, he was kind of a wild man. Like he lived a wild life and he, he you know, wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. And, uh, you know, we told him, all you have to do is believe in the Lord and he'll save you. He said, awesome. Five seconds. Okay, I'm done. Let's go to the strip club. You know, it was like, there was no heart involved. It was, what's my way out? And let me do what I want. Don't interrupt my life. And God can't be fooled. And that's the watered-down gospel. That's what that produces. There's no call. There's no, like, grabbing the impetus and saying, here you go, you are. You don't know how wretched you are, really, in God's eyes. You don't realize you, you, you literally would have to jump the Grand Canyon if you think you can save yourself. So look what Jesus said again in Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Here we clearly see the issue at hand is eternal salvation. And the true believer follows him. Just like John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, Jesus said. That's what they do. That's what my sheep do. Otherwise, they're not a real sheep. He says the same thing in, in verse 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Otherwise, it's fake faith for lack of a better word. You're not really repenting. Bear fruit with repentance. Stop being a fake. A true believer follows the Lord, and the one who doesn't follow Him hasn't placed his trust in Him and hasn't had his heart changed by the Lord. And because it's a life-or-death situation on the board... Jesus never had a problem challenging a person's salvation. I'd rather make my friend, someone I love, uncomfortable and do it in love, but I'd rather be honest and make him uncomfortable even if it has to do with salvation, if it might possibly help them check their heart <clears throat> or examine their faith. Jesus never had a problem challenging a person's salvation. And he supernaturally equipped and encouraged his own under-shepherds to do the same thing. Ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that will convict each person regarding their salvation. No person can say for sure, yay or nay, to another person. We can't do that. But acting as good friends we might have the opportunity to help someone examine their own faith 
or lack thereof, because the lack of good fruit is so glaring. So we might have the opportunity to help someone examine their own faith. And glory be to God if He uses us to open someone's eyes in love. So as the Lord Himself said, if a person denies the conviction of the Spirit regarding turning to Christ from the heart for salvation, then that is the one sin that can't be forgiven. That person chooses to die in their sins. In John 8, 24. Chooses. Own free will. You know, I think I'm good enough to stand before God. And when they do, they're going to have to die in their sins because they're going to realize it's a Grand Canyon in front of them. On the board, Matthew 12, 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. And this took us back, <clears throat> excuse me, to uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Turn again to 1 Thessalonians 5.19. So again, when someone rejects the Holy Spirit convicting them that they need to repent of their sinfulness and turn to Christ, when someone rejects the Holy Spirit telling them that, that's why that's the unforgivable sin, because you're rejecting the, the one thing that can save you, which is the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, for example, the word of God being taught or spoken to you. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We saw on the board the Amplified of the last two verses on Sunday, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. But test and prove all things until you can recognize what is good. To that, hold fast. Abstain from evil. Shrink, shrink from it and keep aloof from it in whatever form or whatever kind it may be. So again, in your Bibles... In the New American Standard, verse 21, But examine everything carefully, hold fast that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. So the Spirit has given us this encouragement and this warning at the same time, the last couple of messages on the board. Examine everything carefully. Never take anyone's word at face value including a pastor, including a teacher like me. Never take anybody's word at face value because they're only a man. Examine the things you hear from fellow man carefully, lest you be lazy and accept the false doctrines as truth. If you're lazy, you will be duped eventually. If you don't look up things in the Word yourself and come to your own conclusions and convictions, you will be duped at some point. So watch out. This is what the Spirit's saying. Examine everything carefully. A man who stands for nothing falls for anything. Think about that. If you don't come to your own convictions about what the Word of God says, 
your own convictions and your own soul, even if it disagrees with your pastor, if you don't come to your own convictions about the Word of God says, you will rely on another man for truth, and you'll listen to anything then. You'll accept anything. That's why the saying, a man who stands for nothing, if you don't stand up for what you honestly believe in your own heart, that the Word says, you'll fall for anything. So we were reminded on Sunday also of something we all need to remember as evangelists. And the Bible says we're all to do the work of an evangelist. What do we need to remember? That the Word of God is what convicts people. The Word of God is what changes people. You know what, Pastor gave me some really good advice because I had to do a funeral for my family last week, as many of you know. And um, it's really tempting sometimes to go off on your own and try to persuade people. All right? But he said to me, you know, my best funerals have been when I've included the most scripture in them, period. And the best responses from people are when you just include the most scripture in there. It's the Word of God that convicts people's hearts. And that's what the Holy Spirit uses. Not our own words, not our own persuasiveness. And by the way, thank you for your prayers for the funeral. It went pretty well. and um, Some family members were thinking, I'm sure. But stick to the Word of God and the Lord's principles. Don't rely on your own wisdom or ideas in witnessing to others. It's the Word of God that convicts people. That's where the power is. We saw the power of each man examining the Word for his own soul in Acts 17.11. So go again to Acts 17.11. We saw the power of each man examining the Word for his own soul. And the result is a man can come to his own convictions and then believe in Christ with his heart. Because he's not come to his own convictions. He's counted the cost, in other words, between him and the Lord. Acts 17.11 Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? Why were these people more noble-minded? Because they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. You should all synthesize these lessons somehow after class or the next day. Whether it's watching the video again, we got this awesome website tool that, listen, 30 years ago, there was no website tool that you could listen again to the message, right? <laughs> and we had cassette tapes for a while. 30 years before that, there was nothing where you could re-listen to a lesson before. Or you can go to the website and look at the outline of the main points and look up some scripture for yourself. Examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Look up some key verses. Come to your own convictions. Look up the things that you're questioning in your heart when you see them in the lesson. Be like, don't just let it pass by because it's going to haunt you later on. God says, if you examine the things in Scripture, look what happens in verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed in their own heart, in their own soul, they came to their own conclusion about Christ and that He is the Messiah. 
and therefore they believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. They came to their own convictions. And you've got to admit it, if you're honest, there's nothing like coming to your own convictions about something. There's nothing like the freedom that comes with that. At the end of Romans chapter 14, it says, Happy is the man that comes to his own convictions, that has faith and, and, and comes to his own conclusions about the faith. Happy is that man. Blessed is that man. So be like these Bereans. Examine the scriptures daily to see whether these things are true. Who knows? I'm, I might be off on something right now tonight that I don't realize. And maybe you'll be able to correct me, hopefully very humbly. <laughs> Pull me aside, make me dinner, and then tell me nicely. You know? uh, I'm thinking of our Bible study, right? When um, Priscilla and Aquila pulled Apollos aside. Apollos was a great preacher, but he, he missed out on the baptism of Jesus. But they pulled him aside. They even took him to their own home and said, you know what, there's a, a little better way that you might be missing. So if you've got to do that with me, great. But examine the scriptures first on your own and be convinced that something's off or there's something you want to share. Wonderful. And then you have your own convictions. There's nothing better than that. So once again... Our entire lives as believers is for the purpose of more people being saved. The gospel, seeking the, and saving the lost, that's why we've been left here on earth, people. I mean, why didn't God just take us up if we're saved? He's like, learn my heart, share my heart. Realize the gospel is the center of everything. That's why I even came and died. And don't ever give up on that mission, the Great Commission. Harvest the fields. Pray for those harvesting the fields, like the apostles were told to do as well. So back to our main theme of the lesson, by grace they were prepared. Not only did their natural abilities have nothing to do with Jesus choosing them, but they had nothing to do with their preparation for ministry either. In fact, their natural abilities handicapped them. The apostles' human abilities often proved to be inabilities spiritually. And that's encouraging to us too, and a good reminder, that even though we're flawed, even though we're going to get in the way at times, Jesus is training us if we're following him. He's always training us if we're following him. We're encouraged by the apostles because God used these men who had their own problems and frailties and weaknesses just like he can use us the same way. And Jesus didn't leave them to their own devices and schemes. He didn't even leave them to their own strengths. Ah, Paul, you're a good speaker. You're Go for it. You're, you don't need any training. He didn't leave them to their own strengths. He's like, get out of the way. Let me show you how to do this my way, by the power of the Spirit. So God and Christ gave the apostles everything they needed. On the board, sending the apostles out. Jesus called them, yes. Jesus also trained them, both academically and on the job. And then Jesus sent them out when he departed.
And the Lord is doing the same for each of us, having given us His Spirit and His Word. And it's by His grace that we can do wonderful things for His name and the salvation of more people. What could possibly be more important than that? Trying to earn some rewards for yourself? Is that why we're here? Or are we here to literally help save someone from eternal judgment? So on the board, by grace they were prepared. We need to understand when and how the apostles' natural abilities were insufficient for the commission they were eventually given. It wasn't enough that Jesus simply called 12 unexceptional men. He made a point of training them up before sending them out. His way, God's way, empowering them with the Word and the Spirit. Why would anyone think He won't do the same for us? I mean, seriously. So, um, we'll finish with one more passage. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11. The only difference with us versus the apostles is that in the church age that we live in now, He's chosen and anointed under-shepherds to lead us and teach us. By God's design, this is like how... The church is to function and how we're to grow and learn. One of the ways. Look at Ephesians 4.11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. By the way, what's the work of service? Think it has to do with the gospel? Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Why are we, why are we becoming more mature in the faith? Why are, we, why are we entering into the fullness of Christ? Could it be for the gospel? Could it be we need to grow up so we can present the gospel better? Everything we do. Verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Why? So that we can accurately and lovingly give the gospel and save more people. Guess what? If you're floundering around in the ocean, tossed around, about by waves, tossed about by everything you hear and accepting everything you hear, you're not going to be a good gospel giver. You're going to be unequipped. And no one's going to listen to you, frankly. You you don't even care, maybe. Because you're tossed around and it's all about yourself. But in verse 15, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And guess what? When you're built up in love, you can 
live in the gospel more fully. You can give the gospel more fully. You can be used by God when you grow up, when you submit to the body of Christ, you submit to your pastor, when you humble yourself and you grow up in love and we're unified. We're ready and spiritually able to live in the gospel. And that's what it's all about. And so we bring God glory. We help win souls. And our purpose is going to be fulfilled. When we get to heaven, we didn't waste our life away, even our own spiritual lives for ourselves. What a shame. That was never the way it was with Paul. It was never the way it was with Jesus. And so we're just following in their example. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much again. Uh, you overwhelm us with your truth and your word. And we thank you for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for building us up in love. And even showing us how much you love us by teaching us and training us and not leaving us to our own devices. Father, we're very grateful for all your provisions, especially grateful for providing your Son so that we don't have to worry about eternal judgment anymore. For those who have repented and turned to Christ, they are secure in your hands and no one can snatch them out of your hand. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we go. Help us bring your word out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.